Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Economic Rockstar Podcast. We are on now episode 147 and I am honoured to have Naya Hatta join me today. Naya Hatta is a PhD candidate at University of British Columbia. Her research title is How Can Trust Be Built Among Parties Engaged in Collaborative Natural Resource Governance? And she draws influence from the work of the only female Nobel laureate in economics, Eleanor Ostrom. Nayo's research interests include trust, government-to-government relations, indigenous communities, collaboration and natural resources, and we touch on some of these topics in our conversation during this episode. Nayo is also co-founder of the consultancy firm Resource Economics Group, which is based in British Columbia in Canada. Resource Economics Group specializes in natural resources, policy, planning and management to do research and support decision-making related to the many values of natural resources and trade-offs associated with managing these values for the benefit of people and the planet. You can find out more about Nio's work at resource-economics.ca or type in Resource Economics Group in a Google search bar. You can also check out all the links to this episode over at economicrockstar.com forward slash Hotta. That's N-G-A-I-O. H-O-T-T-E. And this is, as you've probably guessed, an episode on resource economics. And we discuss a number of economic themes such as externalities, what are they, the types of positive and negative externalities, and how they affect the community and the overall welfare of society. Nio's key interest lies in oil tanker spillages. And we also addressed this issue during this episode and referred to negative externalities and how you can actually offset the costs through carbon taxation. Nio also refers to the broken window fallacy and the tragedy of the commons. We also discuss whether it is better for the environment to have private ownership over lands and waters rather than public ownership. And this brought on Nio's discussion on the work of Nobel laureate Eleanor Ostrom and her works on collective action. Nayo also explains how tax breaks in Vancouver can beautify the landscape and generate positive externalities, and she also gives us some writing tips as well as a recommended book. So why not check out all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over at economicrockstar.com forward slash Nayohata. That's N-G-A-I-O-H-O-T-T-E. And if you'd like to continue to support the podcast in any way possible, well why not share this episode with a friend or a colleague? Or even if you could subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts so that you'll never miss an episode. And if you enjoy this episode, why not check out episode 43 with Herbert Gintas and one of my favorite episodes, episode 36 with Jason Shogren on music and endogenous risk and rationality in the environmental goods market. Another way of supporting the show is over at patreon.com forward slash economic rockstar where you can choose a tier or a level that suits you and you can support the show for as little as $1 per month and you can opt out at any time. So check out patreon.com forward slash economic rockstar for more. So enjoy this episode and I appreciate you for always tuning in and if it's the first time you've ever tuned in, I hope we can meet your expectations and enjoy. And so Hardin put forth or he believed that people couldn't really cooperate. That was kind of the underlying theme is that, that people don't cooperate and they act in self-interest. And that's why you need this private property and property rights. And yeah, I mean, you do, property rights are, are important, but what Ostrom talked about was that people do, people do cooperate. Hi, Nayo. Welcome to the show. Hi, Frank. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate you coming on. It's been a while since I had somebody who spoke to me about resources and resource economics. And it's something that I I don't have a passion for, but I have a really deep interest in it, especially with what's going on around the world today and the way the media is portraying the difficulties that planet Earth is undergoing at the moment from the land to, uh, to the rivers and the seas. And the work that you're doing at the moment pretty much embraces all of those ideals in the form of economics and the dangers or perhaps the the costs involved in 
would it be right by saying pollution and also the lack of resources to deal with the problem that we have in the types of pollution or the scarcity of lands that would help us sustain the planet Earth really in the future? Yeah, that's a that's a totally fair characterization of of my work. I mean, um, well, so economics they say is the study of the allocation of scarce resources, and so you know, resource economics and environmental economics really kind of gets to the heart of that in ways that. Uh, yeah, that, that are often underappreciated, but it, uh, economics is a very important kind of way of looking at the, the challenges that we face uh, with respect to the environment today. And that's it. You know, one of the first things that we come across in, econ- in an economics textbook at the principles level is that it deals with scarcity and with the resources that we have to reach certain attainable levels. And we see that play out. I don't know if you want to go down that way regarding the land. But with the increase in the demand for protein products in the form of, say, meats, especially from Asian economies or more so based on the the Western ideals of using proteins to satisfy or satiate a certain type of diet. Mm -hmm. For example, we might, I don't want to single out a particular diet, but maybe a ketogenic diet or um, we're flattening a lot of valuable land that we have in terms of, say, rainforests and replacing it with agricultural land. And is that something that we can, that's that's pretty much sustainable? Hmm. So there's definitely, yeah, I mean, you, you touched on it. There is, you know, the impacts of preferences, consumer preferences for different types of foods and the environmental implications associated with that. So my introduction to uh, the field of economics was actually agricultural and resource economics. So I kind of started in that area um, and I was very interested in that uh, and, you know, the environmental implications of shifting consumer preferences. So seafood versus beef versus vegetarian diets, that sort of stuff. And yeah, I mean, there's, there's very clear studies that talk about the environmental implications of those things. And and then, you know, where economics comes in is how to uh, internalize the external costs, right, the environmental costs of producing these different types of foods. And so there's been all kinds of, you know, sort of controversial ideas. When you start talking about people's people's food uh, and people's access to food, you know, it becomes a, a heated discussion fairly quickly. So you hear about things like a meat tax that is intended to capture the cost of the externalities in terms of pollution and land use change and greenhouse gases and stuff associated with meat production. And so, you know, these ideas sort of come up every now and then about, you know, the role of economics in addressing these environmental problems. And and it's always important from sort of a, a public economic perspective to remember the distributional implications of some of these ideas. So, you know, how would these types of changes and incentives affect uh, people who have high income versus low income? What's the kind of elasticity of demand? Are people able to shift to substitutes? So, so there's a whole slew of things that you need to consider when you're um, considering these types of, of economic solutions to these environmental problems. But but I'm always I'm always interested in hearing kind of the range of options that people come up with for addressing shifting preferences to, to change our impact on the planet. You're based in Canada, Nio, and would it be fair to say that Canada would have a decent agricultural sector in terms of its how it measures against its GDP relative to other countries, say like the United States? Right. So, yeah, we, I mean, regionally, so uh, Canada, enormous and has lots of climatic zones with uh, that are uh, support growing different types of foods. So we have lots of grains and things like that. Uh, and we also have, you know, like uh, legumes and uh, a lot of different products on the on the prairies, but it's, it's sort of a drier environment. And then um, we have, you know, here in British Columbia, where I'm based, we have fruits and vegetables and uh, we have a kind of a warmer climate where we can support uh, those types of agricultural products. But I mean, definitely we, we uh, produce a lot of agricultural goods in Canada. Yeah. And then the fisheries then, I suppose you are pretty much surrounded by water, which is 
I suppose the ice caps as well are melting and you have more access to the to the ocean there. Yeah, so we have, I mean, we have three oceans around Canada. We've got, you know, Pacific, Arctic, and uh, Atlantic Oceans. Uh, here in BC, we're, we're along the Pacific Ocean. And then also thinking about shifting climates and how that is changing the fish and the fish species that are, are moving, you know, into and out of different waters as the, as the temperatures of the water change and ocean acidification, all that kind of stuff. But, but yeah, we have uh, we have a lot of fisheries, and and we have freshwater fisheries as well too, which um, we often forget about. Even even places like Ontario, where you don't necessarily associate with fisheries, but there are freshwater fisheries there that happen. It's just uh, when I spoke to a recent guest, Professor Donald Boudreau, we were talking about tariffs and comparative advantage and absolute advantage, and just from that, you, from what you were saying there, Canada seems to be. They seem to have a comparative advantage in all types of agriculture, whether it's land or fisheries. And I'm sure you do a lot of exporting as well. We do. Yeah, we do. Um, we also, I mean, do a fair bit of importing, though, too, because of winter, right? So yes. in California, we bring, uh, we we import a lot of, uh, particularly in British Columbia, right? So usually it kind of comes up from directly south of whatever province so in eastern Canada, you're importing from eastern U.S., uh, and then in western Canada, we're importing from western U.S., but we, we do import a lot of agricultural products from California, even from, you know, Washington, apples, that kind of stuff. Yeah, so so we have a strong trade relationship with the U.S., uh, even in terms of, of agricultural products. And I, I'm guessing, would it be fair to say that because of your exposure in Canada, maybe not, that's why you chose resource economics or why did you go down that field yeah so that's that's an interesting story i am um, well i you know as a as a kid i you know i didn't really imagine that i was going to grow up to be an economist i wanted to be a veterinarian as many little kids do but i you know i did grow up doing a lot of things outside in nature um you know we kind of lived in the forest a lot of camping, canoeing trips, all that sort of stuff. And so, you know, through uh, my undergraduate studies, I started to get more interested in forests and the environment. And, and my first kind of real job, as, as you might call it, was in the forest soils and agroforestry lab and uh, learning about trees and uh, and plants and, and that sort of stuff really captured my attention. So I, I as I got older, I moved off into that direction. But I, I came at it from a very scientific side, the natural science side of things. And I was, you know, increasingly concerned as I became aware of the goings on of the world and, and pollution and environmental issues. I was increasingly concerned about them. But it wasn't until I started working on projects, I was working at, in the consulting arm of an env environmental NGO, uh, that I was introduced to the concept of externalities. And that was re really drew me in, this idea that a lot of our environmental problems are associated with sort of uncaptured costs in the price tag of things that we buy. And I had never heard about that before, and it really caught my eye and got me interested in economics. And so working on that project sort of built my interest, and I decided to go back and study, you know, uh, environmental and resource issues from an economics perspective, which, you know, required uh, a lot of catching up in terms of coursework and that sort of stuff. But I have really found that the sort of economic way of thinking, way of seeing problems has really resonated for me. And, you know, I'm, I'm maybe a little bit embarrassed to say that I'm, I'm a better economist than I ever was a natural scientist. It uh, sort of it sticks a little bit better for me. It all makes a little bit more sense to me. But, yeah, I've, I, I really enjoy it now. And I suppose they marry quite well, don't they, being a natural scientist and looking at, at that aspect of the land and agriculture and that, and also being exposed to the other side in terms of the costs, the external costs, and how to, as you mentioned earlier on, how to internalize them. And they blend quite well regarding the two dis two types of disciplines, economics and the natural sciences. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And, and, you know, you'll find that with a lot of environmental and resource economists is that they came into economics 
they didn't start in economics often. They started in natural science and then uh, became interested in kind of the social side of things, you know, recognizing that that environmental problems are really people problems. They're really about people managing resources and, and, and extracting resources and making decisions about them that, you know, sort of the environment would kind of carry on as it as it were otherwise. So, yeah, but having an understanding of both sides of that is really helpful when you're looking at these problems because you can kind of, uh, yeah, you have a, a kind of a bigger picture uh, idea of what's going on. I had a recent conversation, I think it was yesterday, with a dog warden. And we were talking about littering. And I, I naturally, common sense as well, you, people just don't like litter. But I went out to a local beach about a week and a half ago, at six o'clock in the morning, just to go into water and that. And leaving the area at about half seven in the morning, the place was littered. Now, I don't know whether birds had got at the bins and pulled the rubbish out or whether people just left them spewing around the place on the coast. And then the refuse guys were coming in then to pick up all the garbage. Do you really kind of focus in on that type of pollution from the human behavior, dropping rubbish or not not being being very careless with their refuse or do you kind of focus in on more of the macro level stuff in terms of overall pollutions like what we're doing with plastics in the water? I tend to focus more on resource extraction, resource management. But that said, I mean, I did a bit of work looking at economic uh, impacts of tanker spills. We did two big projects uh, because that's been a really controversial issue here on the West Coast with, you know, proposals for pipeline, you know, new or expanded pipelines and increased tanker traffic along the coast. So that that is part of it, you know, that sort of uh, the potential for that kind of pollution. But I tend to focus more on, um, yeah, so so fisheries and forests usually and management of those kinds of resources. So I suppose before we um, maybe talk about some of that, you mentioned the term externalities. And just in case there's someone here listening to the podcast episode who is new to economics or even new to the term externalities, um, would you mind explaining it? Because the problem, again, with economics at a principal's level, whenever that's introduced to students, is that it's usually done at the very end of the chapter and it's briefly got over just so that you cover the curriculum for the, the exam. And there's nothing really, it, it doesn't get fleshed out from my experience or from what I observe anyway. What are externalities and how are they categorized and how do they relate to resource economics? Great. Yeah, that's a great question. So externalities basically talk about things that aren't captured in the, the price of something. So they can be positive externalities or they can be negative externalities. And that's an important thing to, to remember because often in, in environmental issues, we're talking about negative externalities. So costs of, of harm done to the environment that aren't included in the price tag of something. But uh, so when you think about the price of a tank of gasoline, that's you know, a really easy example, is that when you, you know, fill up your car, you pay for the price of gas, but you don't unless you have you know, a carbon tax or a, a, a fuel tax of some sort in your area, in your jurisdiction, you're not paying for the sort of greenhouse gas emissions and the climate effects and, and the problems that that causes um, because those aren't captured in, in the price. But you can have positive externalities as well. So if, ooh, let's see an example of a positive externality. It, it, okay, I'm, I'm looking at a park right now. And so a park, the cost of a park is maintained by the city. So cost of landscaping, cutting the grass, all that kind of stuff. But people enjoy that park. So there's property values that go up around parks and benefits that people gain from uh, from having those parks. And, and, you know, those may be captured to some degree in their property taxes. But often things like that are um, generate more positive externalities than, than are, are captured in, in the costs that are paid for them. Yes. So, so some other examples, I suppose these are textbooks, textbook examples will be, as you, I suppose it's very much like your departure, the neighbor's garden is well-maintained and it has a positive reflection on yours and may increase the value of yours somewhat. Or honeybees, perhaps, who are pollinating 
and looking after land elsewhere, say an orchard or something like that. So these are these are can be seen as both positive production and consumption externalities. And again, it's something that is reflective in the research, I suppose, that you're doing now regarding oil and perhaps oil spillages mm-hmm. and what it does to the environment. And that can have a negative impact on society too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, actually, so just to touch on the honeybee example, that's a very that's a very interesting one, particularly from an economic perspective, because there is now a market for the pollination value that is created by honeybees. So people will pay beekeepers to bring their hives to certain areas so that they can pollinate the plants in that area. Um, and this is, you know, there's a whole industry and, you know, a, a rather lucrative industry where people ship, you know, truckloads of, of hives from one location to another to generate those positive externalities. So, um, so that's, that's a great example is honeybees. Um, in terms of, in terms of oil and, uh, and yeah, the issues associated with that. I mean, we, we talk a lot about that in Canada. And so, one big question that comes up is, so what is the right price for pricing that externality? And and we have been talking here in Canada about a federal carbon tax that would be implemented by the provinces and the revenue would be collected by the provinces and redistributed. But having it, you know, sort of a nationwide carbon tax that, uh, that is supposed to capture the cost of of these things from kind of the, the consumption end of it. And so that's one one way to address those externalities. But then, yeah, in the event of some something major like a tanker spill or or even a pipeline spill on land, those are you know they are very difficult to clean up, and so they can generate quite considerable negative costs. Now, with improvements in in safety and tanker safety and pipeline safety over the over recent decades we tend to see fewer of those really major incidents, but it doesn't reduce, it doesn't completely eliminate the possibility that they can happen. And so those are the studies that we've done looking at um, these kind of scenarios of, you know, if we had no tanker spill, if we had a small tanker spill, and if we had quite a large one, what would be the, the costs associated with those spills that aren't usually included in environmental analysis or or economic analysis that's done by project proponents. So when you hear about the benefits of projects, the economic benefits of projects, you often hear about, yes, stimulating the economy, jobs, revenue, sort of taxes, all that kind of stuff. You know, so we, we had been brought in a couple of times to sort of balance that perspective with Okay, well, well, if we look at some of the potential really negative costs, what could those be to kind of see the other side of that picture? So, yeah, so that's that's been some some important work that we've we've also done. Like your paper, how much could a tanker spill cost British Columbians? And touches on what you were just talking about there, looking at the impact if there was no impact or medium or large impact in terms of an oil spillage, and I suppose one of the things that a government or perhaps a state or even a company would do would be a cost-benefit analysis. And if the projection is that it will benefit the economy or the local economy regarding its employment levels or GDP or even the, the knock-on effects that it have in creating uh, a synergy for companies or the establishment of startups around that particular area, and, and if there was a proposed or if there were projected spillages and the costs of those from a low to a, a high oil spillage and the cleanup, the, the negative externality that's caused by the cleanup there, would would you think generally they be in a way discounted and the benefits would always outweigh the costs of such a thing? Because these events could be rare, but they do happen and the rare, the rare events tend to be more significant due to its uh, high impact that it would have on the region. Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, it would have been nice in our study if we had been able to incorporate some probabilities, but we didn't, you know, we didn't have the sort of data to do that at that point. But, yeah, you want to look at sort of the expected economic value or impact that's generated from any kind of project. And, 
And it's it's tough. It's usually tough to get kind of unbiased numbers in that sense, because, you know, you do have to look at, well, who's being willing to pay for the study that's being done. And a lot of a lot of ex, uh, economic impact analysis does uh, has has come under scrutiny from economists in, you know, academic economists in recent years for doing what's been called, uh, you know, counting all costs as benefits and multiplying by two. So, you know, I, I believe that was uh, Andrew Leach's quote that, uh, but, it, you know, it is, it's sort of a valid criticism that, you know, what are you looking at as costs and what are you looking at as benefits? And so there's one one example in, in economics of the broken windows fallacy, which is that, you know, if you break a window, if, you know, if damage is done and somebody has to pay to fix the window, well, that's technically still benefiting the economy. You know, that's still stimulating the economy because money is still being spent. And that's a that's kind of a big concern in these um, economic impact studies is, you know, what kind of stimulating the economy uh, do we want? And what are we calling costs? And what are, what are we calling benefits? That's true. The, the window, bro- the broken window fallacy, it's seen as a possibly a way of accepting the costs of a certain project, you know, especially an oil spill, because even though it might generate employment, it has it does have devastating consequences, and other parties are affected, mm-hmm. such as a, a fishery downstream or something who are affected by these type of pollutions. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you're in the process of completing your PhD, is it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And how are you getting on with it? Good. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's coming along. I'm uh, I'm actually looking at something. A little bit, uh, one kind of particular field of economics called new institutional economics. And, you know, uh, a woman named uh, Eleanor Ostrom won the Nobel Prize looking at governing the commons. So her book uh, look, and, and her work more broadly looked at uh, people, collective action. So people working together and how you get under what conditions people will work together and cooperate to generate these kind of mutually beneficial outcomes. And a part of that is uh, that she focused on later in her career that she became really interested in was trust. And and so how do you create institutions and rules and how do you get people to work together and create this trust that can help them tackle these problems? Uh, often, you know, natural resource problems, how can you get them to tackle them together? I, I haven't come across that. I, I understand the cooperation and the trust. You might relate it to game theory, but regarding uh, applying it to the environment or interest groups that are part of the environment or the resources, I, I never really looked at it that way because you, some people, or maybe including myself, would assume that some of these resources are owned by the public or by the government and someone has control of them. But in certain circumstances, that could be a bad problem because you end up maybe polluting that area. Not, I'm not saying you. I mean, some people might end up polluting that area, whereas if it was privately owned, and here's the, the case for private ownership, is that they might have certain systems, legal systems, or ways of isolating that area so that pollution may not occur. And is this something that you might come across in your research or have you come across it in, in certain areas that private ownership may be better than public ownership of these types of parks and lands and waters? Right. So you're definitely on the right track in terms of, you know, Hardin's tragedy of the commons. And uh, so Hardin uh, kind of in in that work, in the tragedy of the commons where, you know, he talks about, People, no one in particular owning a resource and and everybody kind of racing to degrade it because they're sort of acting in their own self-interest. And and so Hardin put forth or he believed that people couldn't really cooperate. That was kind of the underlying theme is that that people don't cooperate and they act in self-interest. And that's why you need this private property and property rights. And. Yeah, I mean, you do, property rights are important, but what Ostrom talked about was that people do people do cooperate. She found all these examples, and and you're exactly right that it started from game theory. She noticed uh, in observing these uh, these games involving two people that people would cooperate in circumstances where 
you wouldn't necessarily expect them to. You'd, you'd think that rationally they would act out of self-interest. And But she started to get curious about this because she saw reciprocity. And reciprocity rests on trust, right? You have to trust that the other person is going to return the, you know, the goodwill that you extended to them. And so that's kind of where where the starting point is for this work is that, okay, so under what conditions do people effectively work together when they have property rights, but those property rights are shared among a group of people or two different groups of people that are working together? So in in my particular research, I'm looking at uh, trust between First Nations, so uh, groups of Indigenous peoples in Canada, and the provincial or federal governments uh, when they work together uh, and share decisions about natural resources, whether it's parks or fisheries or forests. And yeah, so how do you create those rules uh, under which people are willing to work together? And, and, you know, at that point, my research sort of uh, encompasses more than so from if you look at it strictly from an economic perspective and and a game theory perspective you have in these experimental games two people that know very little about one another they are so their decisions are essentially reduced to calculative decisions about the cost and benefit but then you know outside of an experimental setting where you have groups of people that interact on a regular basis there are so many more factors that influence those that decision to trust. And so this research is drawing broadly on sociology, psychology, organizational behavior, what's known about trust from all those different fields, including economics, but where people, where we recognize that people um, in a real world setting are making decisions based on, you know, their knowledge of somebody else's expertise, uh, their emotions toward those people, perceived integrity, uh, as well as their own individual propensity to trust based on their kind of lived experience. So it's it's a huge research topic, um, it is, yeah. but it's very it's very interesting and uh, and I think it'll really contribute quite a bit to the field of new institutional economics because you know collective action theory that sort of stuff has been a bit neglected ever since uh, Ostrom passed away. You know, in her Nobel Prize lecture, she talked a lot about trust and, and the future research that she wanted to see in this area. But people people have kind of neglected the field in many ways since she passed away. And, and I'm hoping I've been hearing more about, you know, collective action and institutional economics over the over the past few years, particularly with all the, you know, the conflict and uh, and sort of acrimony in the political sphere that I'm I'm hoping that's stimulating more interest in uh, in cooperation and collective action. British Columbia, I suppose, are leading the way in terms of, you know, fighting pollution. And they've introduced, as you referred to earlier on, they introduced, was it uh, carbon taxes? Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think you're one of the first ones to introduce tar- carbon taxes in, you know, first country to do so, uh, or even that particular area. Yeah, so- and it's something that the Americans are trying to lobby to get Washington to do the same and using British Columbia and Canada as the benchmark to follow. Yeah, British Columbia, it was sort of a leader in terms of establishing a carbon tax. And and that's been very helpful in terms of, uh, you know, studies done on, you know, what was the impact on, you know, there, there's always the fear that it, there will be a negative impact on the economy. But, it, you know, it turns out that it, uh, British Columbia's economy has been doing just fine ever since the, com- the carbon tax was, was introduced. What's interesting and, and, and not many people know is that Alberta has actually had a carbon tax for several years now on industrial emitters. So Alberta doesn't get a ton of, of credit for its work on the carbon tax. It hasn't gotten quite as much attention. But so what's what's interesting about that is, I mean, Alberta was quite a conservative province. It, it remains a very conservative province. But you can get support for a carbon tax from from both sides of the political spectrum. I mean, and and when you think about it from a theoretical standpoint, it makes absolute sense. You know, pricing and economic mechanisms to solve environmental uh, problems, 
yeah, I mean, you, there's a lot of common ground for both sides of the political spectrum there. And what's what's one really interesting thing that I think does get lost a lot in the discussion about pipelines and tankers and emissions and stuff here in Canada is that the right amount of carbon emissions is not necessarily zero. There is a certain amount of greenhouse gas emissions that the climate can deal with and and is is okay. So we aren't aiming for a completely fossil fuel free society, but we do need to address the current levels of emissions that are beyond what the planet can can sort of and the climate can handle. And that's where these pricing mechanisms come into play is you want to set the price uh, equal to the marginal cost of emissions. So that sort of the damage per unit of emissions done to the sort of environment broadly, if you will, you you want to capture that cost, but you don't necessarily want need or need to drive the amount of emissions to zero. I can only imagine that once you reach a certain point or a certain level in terms of emissions, what, what units would emissions be measured in? Is it volume or is it in terms of right? Would it be would it be volume? Would it? Yeah. That's right. Yeah, like it's a green uh, CO2 equivalent per ton, I think, is usually. Oh, tons. Yeah. Okay. So I, I can only imagine once you hit a certain threshold that the marginal costs would start to rise at almost an exponential level. And those costs should then be put toward the, the polluter. The polluter should pay if that was the ideal case. Because I, I wouldn't say the any incremental cost or any incremental change on pollution levels would stay at a stable rate. Because once you hit certain, like for example, temperatures, if it, if the temperature went from, and I talk about degrees Celsius, if they went from 20 to 21, that's a one degree change. And that doesn't really have much of an effect outdoors. But if it went from 29 to 30, that one degree change is quite hot and it'll burn your grass and you'll end up with drought at those high levels. So if you put it in terms of pollution, once you reach a certain level of tons and any incremental change above that would be more devastating to the to the planet or the environment. Right. And and if you want to bring down your emissions faster, you can set the price higher too, right? That that's the that's right. the benefit of a price is that it can be changed. So it can be sort of increased gradually to allow businesses to adjust, or it could be increased, you know, rapidly to address sort of an an urgent problem and then reduced later uh, once those emissions have come down and new technologies have been, you know, created that aren't as GHG intensive, right? So yeah, that's, that's, you know, the added benefit of of a price is that the flexibility. Another thing I want, going back to Eleanor Ostrom's research, I wonder, does she take into consideration the powerful lobbyist groups or would they, would they have been as present? Would they have as, as much political strength at the time when she wrote her paper and received the Nobel Prize? Or did she give a forewarning as to this type of, these groups that are, that could hinder this type of um, reciprocity and collective collaboration, I suppose, and coming up with a, a good solution for the environment? That's a great question. Yeah. Um, I, you know, and I haven't come across references to that kind of issue in her, in her work, in her papers. I think she was mostly focused on, but she does talk about in one of her papers where she has a, a sort of a conceptual model. She does talk about conce- like context, right? The systems context that acts on these people who are making these decisions. And I think that's kind of where this whole range of other things that are um, acting on these people. So it can be political, it can be historical, legal, uh, it can be lobbying. Uh, there's a whole set of sort of external conditions that can can put pressure on the people who are collaborating. And And that's, you know, that's a very relevant point in the context of relations between First Nations and federal or provincial governments in Canada is sort of that that history of colonialism and and distrust that's created as a result of that. So, um, 
you know, we we have sort of a, a dark history of residential schools um, taking First Nations children away from their families, mm. assimilationist policy, not allowing people to practice their culture. So all those things. Uh, so that's that's, you know, another way that um, the system's context can really affect these collaborative institutions and, and whether trust can be created. But you're absolutely right. There's a whole set of of different things that can can act on those institutions. Now, you do some research with the Resource Economics Group. And I'm wondering how you could take on this role along with working on your PhD if you're doing that full time. In a recent interview I had with Cameron Murray, I think it was episode 96, we talked about him writing his PhD and that he blogged his way through it. So he made a almost like a make made himself accountable to the public and on a weekly basis or whenever he could on a daily basis he wrote parts of his PhD not not print published it or anything uh, as a a blog post but his research into before he did final edits or whatever he he posted up there and he became accountable and then put himself almost under pressure to complete that PhD through this process. And I'm wondering, is this similar regarding your work with the Resource Economics Group, or is this something that you're working with on the side as well as your PhD to concentrate on writing about issues regarding land and food and fisheries? Yeah, so that's a really interesting idea of, of, of blogging to keep yourself accountable, to keep yourself on track. Yeah, so so my work with Resource Economics Group, we decided to start that consulting firm. So okay. uh, myself and another person decided to start that. And uh, we have a couple, just a couple of people who work on a project basis. Uh, you know, there's five of us that just sort of work together as projects come up. And it's, an, it's a, just a really interesting way to stay um, involved in kind of current issues, to keep that feeling that you're um, that you your work is uh, that you're accomplishing something honestly so I mean I guess it, it is in a different sense because the PhD the academic timeline is so long right mm. um, and I've been uh, I've been glad that my research is two phase so the, the first phase is case studies so I sort of completed that phase wrote up the chapter and a couple of papers and I'm on to the second phase which is a survey of people who are involved in these collaborations across Canada but for many people, it's, you know, four years and you don't necessarily publish or have kind of tangible outcomes until near the very end. And so consulting is kind of a nice way to keep feeling, keep seeing those outcomes, keep seeing something tangible coming out of your work. And uh, and that helps to feel motivated. But I mean, I, I do also really enjoy tackling uh, applied issues, so uh, applied problems, and often our consulting projects are sort of smaller projects, one to three months long, and they're helping kind of usually, it's a, a, a small organization or, uh, yeah, typically small to medium-sized organizations to to identify, you know, the value or that they're generating or address a problem that they're facing, and so it's you know, it's good. It feels it feels good to be helping people in that sense with these kind of short pieces of work. I've read some of the articles and papers that you wrote on the Resource Economics Group and they're absolutely fascinating. And they really kind of bring it into the, not necessarily the mainstream, but that that has that added value to allowing people who may not be able to access and publish research or may not be able to break down the technical writing that is expected from an academic piece of work. And your resource group allows us to read some of these uh, papers and articles. And they do have that technical, that, that high level as well, but it makes good reading. For example, some of them touch on, as I mentioned, on fisheries and on land. And people, like, straight away I, I looked at the fisheries and with, regarding Ireland, we have, as you know, we're surrounded by a, a lot of water. And again, we have the Irish Sea on the east coast and on the west coast, we have the Atlantic. And we're, given the size of our land, we own a lot more 
inter- land around us that's a lot bigger than the landmass that we have. But we gave up a lot more back in the 1970s to the, in order to be a member of the EEC at the time or the EU today so that we could give up a lot of the waters to the fisheries, which today would be worth a lot of money to GDP equivalent to somebody who would be rich in, say, oil resources. So this is something that may, I don't know whether uh, a cost-benefit would have been done at the time in the 70s to say, yeah, we should give up some of this in order to be a member. But these papers touch on a lot of different sectors within the natural resource area that people, I, I recommend people should take a look at, and I'll put the links on the show notes page uh, for people to be redirected to that website and all those papers that are made available by you and others. Oh, good. Thanks. Thanks very much. Well, I'm, I'm glad to know that they're getting read. I'll have to update them as well because I think there's a couple that aren't on there. And, and I, I could do um, a better job of, of making sure that our peer-reviewed publications are on there too, just for, for interest. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I do like to write these op-eds every so often. Um, I've always enjoyed writing, um, writing for different audiences, but Whenever there is sort of a, a topic, a really important, you know, relevant topic of the day and, you know, I or we have some thoughts about it, I do, yeah, like to, to sort of get it out there and, and get out the economic perspective on it and in a way that people will find relatable and will understand and will kind of get a, a taste of taste of the issues uh, from from an economic perspective. But and I, I was not familiar with the decision that was made by Ireland to kind of give up give up rights to fishing in the waters i'm I'm not i'm not familiar with the eu context as much but that that sounds like an interesting thing that i should probably be looking into and one of the papers that you wrote there urban forestry and the greening of canadian cities i'm sure that kind of ties in with some of the internship that you did earlier on regarding rooftop food gardening and community gardening and when i read that straight away i remember reading or watching on ted a discussion by Ron Finley, who saw all of these parkways, the green area between sidewalks and parking spots that were just left idle and houses that were behind those, or they became responsible for just the maintenance, the cutting of it, or maybe planting a tree there. And what he wanted to do was find a shop, a nearby shop that sold organic apples and he couldn't find any. So what he decided to do was start planting in those areas some apple trees and he got pulled over by the, the local council. But when after he did his talk on TED, it became quite viral that people started using these parkways to do what was known as guerrilla gardening. And they planted their vegetables and they grew vegetables, sorry, and herbs and people could go back and, and trade with one another in the local community. And it solved, say, problems of maybe poverty or uh, improved healthy eating. And I think in Tokyo they're doing the same and they're known as crack gardens. Wherever there are certain areas in parking lots or housing estates, they use that small bit of green land and they grow their fruits and vegetables. And it's collectively, if you look at these small grass parkways or small areas in parking lots, they add up to a, a very large landmass that you could feed a population, you know, based on people who are responsible for that small area. Yeah, yeah. And 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 that's been, you know, that idea of urban farming and urban gardening and um Using those sort of underutilized spaces has been quite big in Vancouver. Um, I mean, in part because of the climate too. Um, you know, we have a sort of a mild coastal climate, kind of like Seattle. But yeah, that that idea has really taken off in in a lot of cities too, uh, sort of across North America. And and so that's a great example of you know going back to positive externalities, right? That using these spaces in in this way or allowing people to use spaces in this way can generate a lot of positive externalities that beyond even just the food that is produced. And, and I mean, if you look at it only from a food production perspective, 
No, I mean, it's it's not as efficient as large scale agriculture, but it is also generating a lot of other positive externalities in terms of, you know, people going outside in terms of health, people being able to use these spaces, education, people learning about about food and, and healthy eating and where their food comes from and all this kind of stuff. So there are all kinds of interesting organizations operating across Vancouver. There's uh, you know, Fresh Roots Urban Farm Society that they do schoolyard gardens. So they take, uh, you know, a, a portion of schoolyards, you know, they work with the um, the school board and create a farm on, on a part of a, a schoolyard that would have been sort of underutilized necessarily and uh, teach kids about eating and cooking and uh, and food and nutrition, all that kind of stuff, and get kids outside. That's, uh, you know, another big problem that I hear about from parents is kids, you know, being inside on their phones. So getting kids outside, doing things with their hands, doing things with each other in person. Um, and uh, then there's, you know, there's other an, another organization here in Vancouver called Shifting Growth that works with property property development companies and so they are paid by these companies to come in and, and do these sort of small scale uh, urban gardening, urban farming operations on vacant land, you know, that is being that isn't being used. And in Vancouver, there's a, a there is a tax break for companies that that sort of beautify landscape, create sort of nicer spaces on vacant land. So they're paid nice. through those uh, those tax breaks and generate these sort of greater positive externalities. So there's yeah. there's lots of really interesting things and interesting models that are being explored here in Vancouver and and definitely elsewhere as well. But um, yeah, yeah, um, that's a great idea. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Now, could we could I ask you a number of quickfire questions? Sure. Yeah, great. We spoke briefly about the PhD and you mentioned about writing and, you know, through the Resource Economics Group. But have you got any writing tips or any advice for students of economics who might be doing a master's or their PhD or even any other economist who want to sit, wants to sit down and haven't, haven't written a research paper in a while or would like to write a book and perhaps where they might like to start? Mm. I, I, I think... One thing that's really important, and this applies across, you know, working on a dissertation, working on a, a paper, or even writing an op-ed, is that you you need it needs to kind of come from the heart, which is not a thing you would expect an economist to say, but um, <laughs> that you have to feel strongly about uh, this this thing that you're writing about, and if you don't, then you need to find a find a different way to look at it or a different, yeah, a different take on it or a different set of data or something that will help you to feel that motivation. Because I, you know, there is so much of being an academic and even, you know, sort of working uh, independently that is about internal motivation. And a lot of people struggle with that internal motivation. Um, And just, yeah, so just finding a topic or a piece of a topic um, or a, a technique that can help you to tap into that internal motivation. That I, that idea of you know writing a blog about you know blogging about your research is is a great one. And, you know, and if that works for you, if that's how you tap into your motivation, then then go for it. But there are a lot of different different ways, um, and I think they're different for each person. But and also, I would say, I guess the other thing I would say is. Be very specific in the scope of what you're looking at. So as specific as you can possibly be. So if you're writing an article, like a journal article or even an op-ed, you have, you know, not a lot of space to convey your thoughts and and background on a specific issue. So the more you can narrow down to something very specific, the easier time you're going to have. And that was the same thing with the dissertation too, is that I was constantly trying to narrow down my focus to the sort of narrowest unit I could, I could get to because otherwise the literature is just so overwhelming and, and you can get pulled off in so many directions. 
And I picked that up from you at the beginning. You were saying you're very passionate about natural resources or the, the natural sciences. And when you found economics, you, you loved it and you were able to bring the two together. And I was there, you know, thinking to myself, that's an, a very big, that means a lot to be able to complete a piece of research. I wouldn't say piece of research, but it's a, a big piece of research that you're actually doing. It helps that you're actually very interested and have a almost like a personal passion for that type of research and that does motivate you to at a daily basis to keep going and complete getting your making your way through it. Absolutely. Yeah, it would be, you know, I still feel very strongly and, and I'm very interested in this research and, um, and I think that that's super important. And I, you know, I, I went back to do a PhD, uh, you know, I, I didn't go straight through, you know, undergrad master's PhD, I took time in between each of those degrees to do some work and then, you know, develop a greater sort of deeper interest in a topic and then go back and study that more. And so, you know, I'm I'm pretty late to the Ph.D. game, but I also think that it gave me time to to really think about the topic, to to get focused on a specific area and to bring that kind of attention and motivation to it that is necessary to to get you through. And you know, if if somebody can find that going straight through for for years from undergrad to masters to to doc to doctorate, that's that's great if they can do it. But I mean, I needed the time to to think about it and kind of gain some more real world experience and knowledge and then bring that into to a topic that really interested me. Nayo, I'd love if you could recommend a book or tell us about a book that really influenced you or something that you might like us to like to share with us that would complement what we were talking about today. Hmm. Okay. So, I mean, if if I get to go quite nerdy here, uh, yeah. o- o- Ostrom, any any Ostrom piece? <laughs> you, I mean, I I think that Ostrom's um, Nobel Prize lecture is a good sort of introduction to what she talked about and it's you know it's just available for free online it's uh you know 10 pages long or something like that nice and then you know if that really interests you then you can move on to her work on governing the commons which was you know her book that uh, that she wrote i i'm a big i'm a big fan of her work and um there's also some great great videos available of some somebody recently made a documentary uh, they're still in the process of finishing it but several of these videos are available on online called ostrom's the movie okay uh, about uh, vincent and eleanor ostrom and those are kind of nice for a different audience maybe you don't have the attention to sit down and read a whole paper at the end of the day of of your workday but you can watch you know, one or two of these videos and get a sense of, of who she was and what she was working on. So, yeah, I mean, r- right now and, and for a while, I have been quite into Eleanor Ostrom and her work. So, yeah, I would that that's what I would direct people to. I think it I think it deserves even more attention than it's than it's gotten. Despite receiving the Nobel Prize in economics, do you think Eleanor has been giving fair press or fair recognition? Because I, I'm only saying that because you mentioned you mentioned Vincent there and uh, the husband, her husband. He was an academic too, wasn't he? He was, yeah. Mm-hmm. Somebody posted a tweet a couple of days ago. I must actually find it and um, retweet it. But it was a picture of Vincent and Eleanor, and Vincent was in a. The picture was more an academic environment. He had the pen or the pencil, the paper, the the blackboard behind with the mathematical equations or some text. And then the picture of Eleanor was very much looking like a homemaker or a woman. And, you know, the hair was all tied up and in the the blouse and no sense of academia. Now, that, that could be unbiased and someone could have intentionally identified these pictures and looked at the, the two and I suppose when I say that, really, Marie Curie was the same when she received her Nobel Prize in chemistry and I think it was physics. And she, they didn't want to give her the prize. They wanted to give it to the husband. But they, they collaborated, the two of them, and she was more the driver in the research that she did. 
and he wouldn't accept it unless she was to receive her equal equal recognition at the time. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, you know, would did she get it? Because you did say that her work has really gone astray and you and a few other people are the, the beacons of light and are putting a spotlight now on her work. And it's it's great. She she was only mentioned once, only once, I think, in a previous podcast episode. And it's great to be able to pick up on her work and give us this type of information that we could go and read her Nobel lecture and also some of the videos and this movie that's being made. It's great to see it in those formats, too. Yeah, so it's it's very interesting her story. So she um and and so she wasn't allowed to study economics. She wanted to study uh, she wanted to do her PhD in economics and she wasn't allowed as a woman and so she said fine I'll go into political science instead and she ended up working with Vincent Ostrom. So then they began working together on a lot of things. And, and he had done some previous super interesting work looking at the commons and, and water in watersheds uh, outside L.A. that sort of predated even Hardin's work. So that was that was interesting in and of itself. And so they they did. They were very much equals. And that that comes out in a lot of the movies uh, or in, in a lot of the sort of film segments for that movie that are available online. But the economists always sort of, or, or sorry, many, many economists still sort of deny her as being a real economist, right? They say, well, that was sort of technically political science. And, um, and, and you know, many were uh, reluctant to acknowledge her work at all until she won the, pro- the Nobel Prize. And then even, I mean, even afterward, they still sort of well, it's not strictly economics, and I would say that that's not all economists. There are, but there are sort of a, a vocal subset who who still don't really want to acknowledge her work. And this actually came up recently. I saw a presentation where somebody had added. Uh, a, it was a presentation about about the Commons, and someone had mentioned Vincent Ostrom as. Uh, in the keywords, but not Eleanor Ostrom. And I thought, you know, here we go again, that somebody is trying to, trying not to acknowledge her work, trying to erase this woman from history. But in in her work, or, or in the videos that uh, are available online, you'll see that she really wanted Vincent's work recognized as well. That, you know, they were, they considered one another to be uh, equal partners in these sort of intellectual endeavors, and and they both brought their own ideas to the table. And so, you know, they both wanted the other one's work to be recognized. And I, I think it's uh, it was just very touching. They both seemed like such wonderful people and also such brilliant people that uh, I think they're they're great economist role models, both of them. If you could step into the DeLorean now and time travel, what year would you like to go back to and who would you like to meet? Or would you like to kick some ass in terms of those economists who have tried to remove Eleanor's work from, I'm sure there was debates at the time to give her the Nobel Prize? Uh, I, I recently was in a conference with a woman who studied with, uh, with Eleanor and Vincent Ostrom. And she went to, she w- traveled with them when... Eleanor Ostrom got the Nobel Prize, and if I could time travel, that is where I would want to be. That <laughs> to, to go and 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 just hang out with them while she was getting ready to get the Nobel Prize. The the stories were wonderful and sweet, and uh, and that is yeah, that's the person who I'd really really like to meet. Would you have anything in mind to say to her? What way would you like the conversation to go? I would just listen. I would just ask a lot of questions and I would listen and just take it all in. <laughs> and that's exactly what I've done today. <laughs> <laughs> you know, asking the questions and listening. And to be honest, um, it, it was a great talking to you, Niall. I learned a lot from you and it's great to be able to have another resource for me to look into and pardon the pun, but your resource economics group. And I am definitely going to be keeping my eye on it and can't wait for more op-eds and some other research. And hopefully this, this will grow because we need it. We, we need 
a group like yourselves, a consulting group to work with companies and businesses because it's going to be a benefit for not only your the immediate environment which this business works from, but also the expansive environment that we live in. So not not only British Columbia, but all of Canada, all of the US and as far away as Ireland. And we all need to work together. And as you mentioned earlier on, there needs to be some reciprocity and collaboration and hopefully for the benefit of all land, all resources and the environment too. So I, I learned a lot from you and thanks very much. And I'd like to say that you are an economic rock star. Thanks so much, Frank. I really <laughs> appreciate the opportunity to be on the podcast and, uh, and I really appreciate your interest in my, in my work. It is nice. It helps to, helps to keep that motivation up, keep morale going for the next year and a half of the PhD. Yeah. And I, what I'll do is I'll put all the links, books and resources mentioned in this episode at economicrockstart.com forward slash Niohata. That's N-G-A-I-O-H-O-T-T-E. So you can check out, uh, go visit our website and there'll be links that will direct you to Nio's own website, Resource Economics Group and other work that, she, that you've published online. Nayo, thanks very much for spending this time with me. Thanks very much. I really appreciate the, the chance to be on here. Economic Rockstar is a free podcast that does not exclude anyone from listening as long as they have a device to listen, download or stream. I have many listeners from all parts of the world and I truly am pleased to know that the Economic Rockstar podcast unites all of you through the common theme of economics. I strive to commit to releasing an episode each week and aim to develop Economic Rockstar into much more than just a podcast. Patreon is a platform that gives you, the listener of the Economic Rockstar podcast, the opportunity to express your appreciation of the show by committing a financial reward for as little as $1 a month. Patreon allows me, the creator of the Economic Rockstar podcast, to be rewarded and paid by you so I can continue with the running costs of the show and to reinvest and expand the podcast into other platforms or mediums in the future. To find out more on how you can help the Economic Rockstar podcast and have your name added to the supporters list on my website, please check out my Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash economic rockstar or visit the supporters page on the economic rockstar website if you enjoyed this podcast why not leave some feedback or comments on the show notes page on economicrockstar.com where you can also sign up and be a member of the economic rockstar community if you're listening to this episode on itunes or stitcher radio i would love to have some feedback and for you to leave an honest rating and review as this will help with the rankings of the show so that more people can find it if you're listening on the website economicrockstar.com make sure you check out the back catalogue of all previous episodes and interviews with some amazing professors and authors at economicrockstar.com forward slash podcasts Thanks for listening and I really appreciate your loyal support. I know how much you love audio, so why not get a free audiobook with Economic Rockstar today? I've teamed up with audiobooks.com to bring you this amazing offer. Visit audiobooks.com forward slash rockstar to download your free audiobook now.